Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm your host Mark Hamilton and on today's show we'll take a quick look at that beautiful weather. We also want to talk about Brian Schroeder and what he has going on for the state of Wyoming. And then we'll take a look at travel. We'll have an update on Yellowstone. And then we're going to stop in Centennial, Wyoming and talk about the Mountain View Hotel. And finally today we want to talk about a murder on South Pass in the 1800s. We hope you enjoy our show and thanks for listening. at Wyoming weather here on the 22nd day of June. The month is coming to an end here real quick. Fourth of July is right around the corner. Our weather has been warming up. Well, you have a little bit of a blow come through. Clouds will darken up and, and start blowing, but the temperatures are starting to warm up. Of course, we are in the first day of summer. Conditions around the area, and I guess that's a good relief. Not a lot of activity after that initial onslaught at Red Lodge and on the Yellowstone. With the warmer temperatures, they worried about some potential runoff and also there were some heavy storms predicted. It didn't materialize. So I think we're going to get into our summer weather. It's going to be absolutely gorgeous. We've been up in the high 80s. Weekend coming up, we've got a, a day or two of some cool down and then we'll warm back up. And, and that's kind of normal this time of year. But with the 4th of July coming right around the corner and looking at some of the long range forecasts from different sources, looks like we're going to have some pretty good weather. Uh, definitely some summer weather that we can start enjoying. Our outdoors out there, definitely it's green everywhere, but the weather looks good right now for the state of Wyoming. In Wyoming political news, in a media release from June 22nd, 2022 from the Wyoming Department of Public Instruction, and an updated statement from Superintendent Schroeder on the USDA nutritional funding. On May 5th, 2022, President Biden's U.S. Department of Agriculture announced that all state and local agencies funded by its sub-agency, Food and Nutrition Services, FNS, must update its non-discrimination policies to include new provisions for gender identity and sexual orientation or risk the loss of millions in federal lunch dollars. The USDA is enacting pursuant to an executive order signed on January 20, 2021, directing federal agencies to promulgate or revise rules enforcing the administration's new anti-discrimination mandates. This matters because the Wyoming Department of Education will fall under the mandates affected category as it receives about $40 million per fiscal year from FNS, the Food and Nutritional Services. As Superintendent of Public Instruction, responsible for setting department policy, Schroeder said, I am immediately opposed to this action in the strongest terms possible on legal, political, and moral grounds. The Biden administration gets it wrong again because this action is illegal, which is why 26 state attorney generals are linking arms and demanding a retraction. Undoubtedly, the USDA will face a flurry of lawsuits once rules made pursuant to the executive order are promulgated. This move not only represents the latest example of federal overreach, but one more blatant violation of state sovereignty. Our Wyoming Constitution, Article 1, Section 2 and 3, already prohibits discriminating against any human being for any reason. We don't need the 
nanny state holding our hands and telling us how to interpret or apply our laws. After consulting with other state educational superintendents around the country, numerous Wyoming legislators and governing officials, as well as the Attorney General's Office and other legal authorities, the short of this is we will not comply. Vulnerable children will not go unfed in Wyoming, and we will not allow boys and girls locker rooms. We categorically reject gender ideology and will not bow to the coercive will of the bully government. Treasurer Kurt Mayer and a host of Wyoming state leaders have assured me that Wyoming has the money to cover these lunches. We can cut ties with these federal lunch dollars and still provide our Wyoming kids. It only requires two things, the will of the Wyoming people and the determination of Wyoming's governing leaders. If we don't fight this, we enable it. Therefore, I call on all Wyomingites to appeal to their local legislators concerning the liberating prospects of severing our dependence on federal dollars. Washington has shown its hand and will never stop at forcing its woke agenda and ever-changing value system on people who refuse to embrace it. Be fully assured this is not the end. They will be back. Example, boys and girls sports, forced usage of pronouns, etc., the Wyoming Legislature is constitutionally obligated to fund our public schools, and I will support and encourage all efforts to begin the process of cutting ties with federal funds while updating the constitutional mandate to financially sustain Wyoming's public education. Such actions, of course, would have to be a phased endeavor, but it is completely doable, and I am fully committed to working with our governing body on how to proceed in a prudent manner. This statement is not to be interpreted as a call for a special session of the Wyoming Legislature, but at some point, we need to move on this, or we will forever be under the Fed's thumb, beholden to a controlling political mindset that wants to own every aspect of our lives, including our belief system. This is a defining moment for the identity and future of Wyoming and its schools. We must break free if we are to be free. Quite a upfront and right-to-the-point statement by Schroeder, reaffirming our values that we have here in the state of Wyoming. And I do admire that we are taking a look at this and going about trying to find a way to break those ties from the federal government. So, Superintendent Schroeder, you are definitely, as per the Code of the West, standing up, standing at that line, and you are definitely doing everything for our state. You are definitely writing for the brand. Thanks for all your great effort. Taking a look at Wyoming travel, Yellowstone Park had opened back up on June 22nd. South Loop will be open for travel. They did put some stipulations on getting into the park. They're using a numbering system, odd and even, on the last number on your license plate. And that will correspond to the day of the month that you can get into the park. Check with the park services for more details on that. But it's not with the uh, route that they have open. There just isn't a lot of room for a lot of people in that area. So that's why they're having to go to that system. Rather unique uh, way to go about it. But they are still looking at the roads in the northern part of the park. They're unbelievable. I've seen many aerial views of the park and some of the roads that are washed out it's going to be a treacherous job trying to get in there and getting those filled up they did appropriate 50 million dollars and are trying to push this as fast as they can i know the governors of both wyoming and montana are behind the rebuild doing everything they can to get this accomplished but just a reminder that both states are still open 
There's a lot of scenic travel in both the states if you're planning on making trips. Wyoming is green right now. I cannot believe how gorgeous it is outside. I made a trip across the Bighorns and it's just absolutely unbelievable. I, it's just a soothing trip and there's a lot of water in the creeks. The reservoirs are filled up. Poison Reservoir is filled. They are letting water out and the Bighorn is running pretty fast right now. And another rare situation at Buffalo Bill Reservoir, which is up west of Cody, Wyoming. This is the first year and I think five years that they've actually had to let water out of the reservoir in any type of amounts due to the inflow into the Buffalo Bill Reservoir. So that's good news for the state. But for travel, again, a lot of places to go in this state. We're going to be talking here briefly. A site you could go to in southern Wyoming, down west of Laramie, Wyoming. Just hop in that car and take off. And if you're listening to this podcast and haven't made your mind up, if you'd like to come to Wyoming, now is as good a time as any. Today in our history section, we'd like to take a look at the Mountain View Hotel. And this is from the Wyoming State Historical Preservation Office. The Mountain View Hotel was an integral part of the settlement of the Centennial Valley at the foot of the Medicine Bow Mountains, about 25 miles west of Laramie. With strong ties to mining, railroad, and early tourism endeavors, the building has remained in service in numerous income-producing capacities for more than a century. Construction of the building was first proposed in 1906 and was built by Eastern Capital at a cost of $8,000. The Boston Wyoming Lumber Company ended up earning the contract and construction began immediately. The plan called for 20 guest rooms and three baths with the most improved system of plumbing. However, originally bathrooms were placed outside in the livery stables for some reason. The hotel's furniture was shipped from Chicago and a man named R. Mettler was imported by railroad to handle its daily operation. The local newspaper, the Centennial Post, on December 7th, deemed the hotel the pride of Centennial, stating that the hotel is one of the finest and best equipped in the West. The report further exhorted, Every booster will now include the hotel in a list of all good things worthy of being boosted, and never neglect to whoop it up for the mountain view. Another news item in early May 1908 explained Agent Tim Ullerin of the Plains Line is engaged in trapping grasshoppers, which means that the trout population in the nearby streams will be greatly diminished in the near future and that the guests at the Mountain View Hotel will be feasting on fish that are the finest in the land. Later that year, a full-page advertisement in the Post announced the Mammoth Christmas Tree and Grand Santa Claus Ball to be held at the Centennial Pavilion on December 24, 1908, which included a special train trip on the Laramie, Hans Peak, and the Pacific Railroad. Guests would leave Laramie at 7 p.m. for the ride to Centennial, where they would enjoy a fine supper at the Mountain View Hotel, exchange gifts with family and friends under the largest and most magnificent Christmas tree in Wyoming, and dance to the music provided by the Neath Orchestra before returning to the Laramie. On April 20, 1912, the Post carried the news that Mr. and Mrs. Gustav Sumby had leased the Mountain View Hotel and were having it cleaned and remodeled with plans to conduct a first-class hotel and summer resort that would be cheerful, comfortable, and homelike. The couple apparently purchased the hotel a couple of years later, charging $1 to $1.50 for accommodations and meals. 
which included a breakfast of fresh fried trout, toast, pancakes, and eggs, and a dinner of steak and trout. County records are sparse, and existing documents show that the Sunsbees owned and operated the Mountain View Hotel, and it was originally intended until 1940. Following the Sunbees, many individuals owned the hotel through the 20th century, and an element of its function would change slightly with each new owner. Dorothy Fisher purchased the building, and part of it became Fisher's gift shop and the town's post office for a short period of time. In the late 1950s, the building was converted into apartments. Owners Kathleen and Mike McShane acquired the building in early 2014 and now run it as a hotel once more. A small restaurant inside contributes to the experience for guests who visit downtown Centennial. The hotel is a survivor both physically and fiscally. It embodies the spirit of the early pioneers, miners, ranchers, railroaders, and entrepreneurs of Centennial. Much like the town, the hotel remains a sense of community spirit that welcomes any traveler. The Mountain View Hotel was named to the National Registry of Historical Places on June 17, 2007. And finally today, this story is from wildhistory.org by Randy Brown. The Grave of Ephraim Brown Out of the nearly 200 people who died from murder or other homicides on the Oregon Trail in the mid-1800s, only one lies in grave with a known location. Missourian Ephraim Brown, a leading figure on a wagon train bound for California, was killed near South Pass in 1857 in what appears to have been a bitter family dispute. Details, however, who killed him, why and how, are frustratingly sketchy. Arguments and fights were frequent on the overland trails, and murders happened from time to time. The many irritations of the journey tended to make for short tempers. Disagreements over division of property, not to mention outright theft, led to conflict and once in a while killings. For the years 1841 through 1865, Richard L. Reek, the leading expert on trail deaths, has documented 89 murder victims by name and another 83 unknowns who were slain by their fellow immigrants. During that time, as many as half a million people made the trip west. Wreck's numbers do not include another dozen or more anonymous individuals reported as dying after incidents of violence and many more repeated cases of attempted murder. Bodies of obvious murder victims were occasionally found on the trail. Most often, the perpetrators were identified and escaped punishment. Others who killed immigrants in fights or in self-defense were sometimes banished from their company. Still, there were 21 reported murder trials that resulted in execution on the trail. But of the graves of the nearly 200 people involved in these incidents, only one survives. That of Ephraim Brown, killed in 1857 on the trail at Rock Creek near South Pass. Ephraim James Brown was born in Kentucky about 1823. In 1846, he married 16-year-old Nancy Ann Sheckles. They settled on a farm in Rails County in northeast Missouri near the Mississippi River. Nearby were several farms occupied by her extended family. Among those, among these were two of Nancy's married sisters, Rebecca Sheckles, Witt, and Mary Frances Sheckles Menifee, wife of Nimrod W. Menifee. The Menifees lived with an aunt next door to the Browns. Iris Shekels. The sister's younger brother also lived there. All told, these relatives numbered 33 people at the time of the 1850 census. 
Many of them would be in the wagon train of 1857. About 1853, Ephraim Brown and Nim Menifee, brother-in-laws, went to California where for a year or two they were partners in a general store in Sacramento. After saving a portion of their profits and perhaps selling the store, the record is unclear, they returned to Missouri where they planned to return to California with their families. The ensuing wagon train of 1857 became a general migration of many members of these extended families, including Nim's father, Arthur Menifee, and several more of the grown children and teenage daughters. By then, Arthur, age 61, had married the young widow Rebecca Shekels, wit, then about 24, the sister of Nancy Shekels Brown and Mary Shekels Menifee. Ephraim and Nancy Brown were the parents of four children, of whom that only three can now be identified, William, Anne, and Harriet. The only account of the journey is Arthur Menifee's diary. It is short on detail and lacks a company roster. Some members of the company can be identified, however, including three unmarried brothers of Nancy Brown, Ira, Napoleon, and Jack and Shekels. The count for the number of people in the wagon train comes to 27, but the list is probably incomplete. The center of the authority in the company was the trio of Arthur Menifee and his son Nim Menifee and Nim's brother-in-law, Ephraim Brown. All three were married to daughters of Pauline and Ira Shekels, Sr. They were Rebecca, Mary, and Nancy. So it was a big company comprised primary of kinfolk, perhaps a dozen wagons, and many animals, including at least 125 head of loose cattle. They left home on May 13, 1857, apparently in different groups. For on May 24th, while camped at the Grand River in western Missouri, Arthur Menifee wrote, Nim and Ephraim coming up about one o'clock. Great joy in the camp. Altogether a mutual friendship and harmony and continued until next morning when a little storm rose between Mary and Nancy. Arthur Menifee was a dispassionate and impersonal diarist. After June 4th, when he briefly described the marriage of his widowed daughter, Mrs. L. Underwood, to J. Westfall while they were in St. Joseph, he rarely mentioned anyone by name. Even on the day Ephraim Brown was killed, he remained uncannily reserved. On August 2nd, the company was camped at Rock Creek, about 15 miles east of where the trail crosses the Continental Divide at South Pass. Author Menifee wrote, Next morning at the point of leaving, a conflict took place, which terminated in the death of E. Brown, buried him and left at 12 a.m., traveling over a tolerable road until we arrived at the Mormon Station, distance 11 miles. The Mormon Station was a post maintained by the short-lived Brigham Young Express Service on the south side of the Upper Sweetwater. Clues to a killing? What happened? After his entry of May 24th, Menifee made no other references to disagreements between the women of the train. In two obituaries in 1836 for Anne Louise Brown, the daughter of Nancy and Ephraim, it is written, Ephraim Brown was fatally shot in a quarrel shortly after the trek began. The second obituary adds that when the quarrel took place, they were standing guard over the stock to prevent Indian raids. It is not known if the fight was prompted by a quarrel between Nancy Brown and Mary Menifee, who after all were sisters, and it is useless to speculate. On August 11th, while they camped east of the Commissary Ridge on the sublet cutoff about 100 miles west of South Pass, Menifee wrote, Here we tried the boy 
and dismissed him from the train after finding him guilty, thence pursuing our journey. The boy, presumably Ephraim Brown's antagonist, is unidentified. While traveling down the Humboldt River in western Nevada on September 19th, Menifee wrote, Nancy Brown left us and four other wagons. So there the company broke up, but it is not known who split off with Nancy, perhaps one or more of her brothers. The remainder of the Menifee's company reached Eagle Valley, present Carson City, Nevada, on October 11th. Most of them went on to California, but Arthur Menifee stayed in the valley and died there two months later. Nancy Brown also remained in the valley for the winter and did not proceed to California until the following year. She married an ex-49er. Chester Smith in Sacramento in 1859 had several more children. Swift was a teamster for the Nevada mines, but also a habitual gambler. He lost our home in Carson City sometime in 1870 and then deserted the family. Nancy made a meager living as a cook and by selling pies, but was forced to give up her three young Swift children to the orphanage in Valero, California. She appears in the 1880 census living alone in Bodie, California, apparently running a rooming house. Soon thereafter, she went to Merced, California, where her daughter Anne Louise Brown Carter was living with her husband and her family. Not having heard from her husband, Chester Swift, in many years, Nancy married William Newman in 1882 and then was able to retrieve her children from the orphanage. When Chester Swift showed up not long after, the marriage to Newman was dissolved, and then both men abandoned her and the children. She never married again. In 1890, Nancy Brown Swift moved with her daughter, Lily Mae Swift French, to a ranch near Winslow, Arizona, where Nancy died, March 22, 1901. The location of her grave, unlike the grave of her first husband, Ethan Brown, is now unknown. Just an unbelievable story of what the early pioneers and the settlers that made those trips out here, what they sacrificed in their lives. Could we accomplish that today? That's the question. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed our show. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming. Here at Let's Talk Wyoming, your everything Wyoming podcast.